when I went back to sort of the creation of patriarchy, this creation of this system in which women are of service to the world and men are in the world, and I looked at the moralizing arm, I realized that this punch card of goodness for women is the seven deadly sins and that they completely overlapped with all of the corners of my life in which I am chasing quote unquote goodness. But when you look at them, you're like, oh my God, I didn't sign up for these. I didn't subscribe to these. I don't believe in any of this. And yet here they are. Sloth, envy, pride, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. Those are all things women don't allow themselves, whereas men are not bound by the same rules. Welcome back to the Big Time Adulting Podcast. Very exciting day today. I have um, somebody who I admire greatly, Elise Lunin. She is the host of her own podcast called Pulling the Thread. She has co-written 12 books, five of which were New York Times bestsellers. Fucking insane. Elise was the chief content officer for Goop. Ever heard of it? A lifestyle and e-commerce company where she co-hosted the Goop podcast and the Goop Lab on Netflix. Now, Elise, hi. Hi. (laughs) So I have to tell you, I was like little nervous, like, oh my God, this woman was the chief content officer of Goop. Like I need to like exfoliate, meditate, masturbate, (laughs) get on some cashmere before we fucking hit this podcast interview. Like what do I do to prepare? I have to be ultra chic right now. Um, How how many years did you work there? I worked there for about seven years and I have been away from the brand for almost three yeah, and what does Gwyneth smell like? <laughs> a candle. I think we all know that. <laughs> the vagina candle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have to say, like, I find that brand to be very intimidating in a lot of ways. You know, the price tags and the culture and the chicness around all of it seems almost difficult to keep up with. But I really did feel like you brought this very human aspect to it. Thank you. Via your interviews and the deep, thoughtful questions you asked as the host of the Goop podcast. I mean, you completely stole the show. And I thought you just gave so much substance to the brand that it really changed me on it. And um, you're just, you're so fucking smart and amazing and an incredible interviewer. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. I feel like we should just exit on this note and leave this for (laughs) posterity. We're on such a high right now. (laughs) I'm only going to disappoint everyone from here on out. (laughs) I highly doubt that. But you've been putting, you've been, I, I shouldn't say you've been putting me to sleep, but you've been like sort of lullabying me to sleep with your book on our best behavior for the last couple of weeks as I've been, I'm an audiobook listener. I don't do as much reading because I like to be able to like listen on the go. Now you finally have something with your own name on the cover and I read it and I loved it, and, but I would love for you to just tell everybody about the book a little bit in your own words. Yeah. So as mentioned, I have co-written, ghostwritten, collaborated on 12 books, convinced that I did not have a book in me. And my agent staged a, a mini intervention many years ago and just said, this is crazy. I mean, you can keep doing this. You need to sort of examine <laughs> examine whatever <laughs> it is in you that insists that you have nothing to say. 
And I took her words to heart and just sort of opened myself to the possibility of even writing a book. And then this sort of central probing question came to me, which is, despite being a very high achieving person um, and pushing myself throughout my life to excel and do well, I was still plagued by these feelings of not being good enough, not being thin enough, not being smart enough. You know, I'd done enough therapy to recognize that these voices in my head weren't necessarily coming from my parents or my husband. They were coming from culture. They were things that I had inherited and were was consumed by. And it was killing me. It really felt like I was finding not a commensurate amount of joy in my life with how hard I was working, if that makes sense. like, And I recognized that I was involved in some sort of endless race or struggle that I would never get to a point where I felt like, okay, I've arrived. I've achieved. I'm safe. I'm secure. I have enough money. My body looks how I... I, I recognized I was like engaged in a ridiculous run and that I needed to turn and sort of face what was chasing me um, and all of these voices that insisted that I would never be acceptable, safe, secure enough. And I sort of started making a list of what those messages were and the ways in which women have been programmed or conditioned to pursue goodness in contrast the way that men have been conditioned or programmed to pursue power. And how for women, reputational damage, saying that a woman is bad, a bad mother, a bad person, uncaring, unloving, is a cancelable offense. The worst thing that you can say about a woman, the worst thing you can do to a woman is this reputational damage, whereas men can do commit all sorts of crimes and we still venerate them so long as we perceive them as powerful. We respect them, right? And so that's what I wanted to, to solve. This: What is this system of goodness? What is all of this programming? Where does it come from? And how does it show up in our lives? And where I landed is sort of an unlikely place because I was not raised in a religion or in a religious household at all. But I realized that this punch card of goodness for women is the seven deadly sins and that they completely sort of overlapped with all of the corners of my life in which I am chasing quote unquote goodness. Um, And that was sort of a strange, it was a strange revelation because I think we think of those as like, some of us can name them, some of us can't. But when you look at them, you're like, oh my God, I didn't sign up for these. I didn't subscribe to these. I don't believe in any of this. And yet here they are. And they are sloth, envy, pride, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. Those are all things women don't allow themselves. Whereas men, men don't, are not bound by the same rules. I was immediately interested in reading the book after I heard that the premises was the seven deadly sins because I kind of like like that shit. It's like let's like <laughs> let's get into this. You know, sounds fun, right? And by the way, not only are you good enough, you're just great, Elise. Okay, <laughs> you are great because you're so you're just 
you're not just interesting, you're so interested, which makes you so interesting. I love the way that you're so interested in things. And um, I just, I loved your personal storytelling within your book too. It wasn't just about like a theory. There was a lot of um, human element in there about your life, which I just, I love that stuff. And you were very vulnerable. The beginning of your book was about sloth, which was just like highly relatable to me. And I think highly relatable to moms. Mm -hmm. Like I used to personally be able to sit around a lot more before kids, like guilt-free and just not really feel like I had to be in constant motion. And ever since I've had kids, I just feel like, and I just will mention you have two boys too. What, how old are your kids? 10 and almost seven. Okay. Yeah. So we're in a very similar wheelhouse. Um, I have a nine, seven, and four. And then, so I just, when I sit down, I feel guilty. Like I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to be doing more. And you talk about how your husband, Rob, is able to like lie around on the couch and like have a whiskey and, you know, watch a movie with your boys and just like is fine. And nothing's like going through the back of his mind about maybe what else he should be doing. And then you made this comment about, a permission slip about um, if he had gotten around to signing a permission slip before you, like it would have, like your point I think was that if you let it go, he would do it. But I was thinking at the same time, oh my God, if I had got, if my husband had got around to signing a permission slip before me, I would have felt like I was slacking. Like that would have been my job. I should have done that first. Or I would have felt not even that it was my job. I just would have felt guilty. Like I was slacking having not gotten to it first. And so I guess I, w- I just wanted to ask you if you would like go into that phenomenon a little bit about mm-hmm. why is this so ingrained in us? Yeah. I mean, this is something and the book is is about what we police in ourselves and then wittingly and unwittingly police in each other. But these cultural norms that we end up holding up that we we hold ourselves to these standards and then by proxy hold each other to these standards as well because we nobody wants to be deviant right nobody wants to be the one whose child is like why don't you ever drop me off at school etc like there's so much shame for women in that and this is not baggage that men carry and in my house i my husband and i both work full time I am the primary breadwinner. I, because in addition, I don't have a full time job now. I'm just writing, podcasting, et cetera. But throughout my career, I would have a full time job and I would ghost write books on the side and do a little consulting, et cetera. So in my house, theoretically, there should be equity. Um, and my husband is a wonderful, lovely guy, but there's just, there's not. And a big part of it is learned helplessness on the part of my husband and competency on mine. And then a significant element here is what you were talking about, which is sort of this, uh, I call it the cattle prod. I'm from Montana. The cattle prod at my butt, you know, that's just sort of lasering me into perpetual action and this feeling, this chasing, this feeling of like inadequacy because I'm not as present as some other moms. And so I'm constantly looking for ways to sort of rebalance. And the rebalancing, I think, for moms comes out as uh, ratcheting up, right? Like, wow, I just was on launching my book. I haven't been as available. So now I need to spend an entire week one-on-one with my kids compensating for 
last week, et cetera. Instead of saying, okay, I'm firing on all cylinders, I actually need a little bit of space and a break, right? The the what happens with women, I think, is that we sort of go into this equalizing through even more effort, more doing, more output. You know, even on this book tour, I live in Los Angeles. I was doing an event in New York on a Thursday evening. And instead of, I needed to be back in New York that Sunday. And instead of staying, like a reasonable person and an environmentally loving person would do, I took a 10.30 p.m. flight home from New York to Los Angeles, landing at three in the morning so that I could be at my son's parent-teacher conference the next morning in person rather than Zoom, um, and then flew back to New York. And as I was doing it, I could recognize that it was insane and that nobody was suggesting that this was a good idea. And yet I just, I, I couldn't reconcile it. And I recognize that's still work I have to do. So Previously, sort of unconsciously, I would have projected my frustration about that onto my husband, probably, even though he was like, this is insane. I would have still somehow sort of blamed him. I would have found a way. Because you don't understand the pressure I feel to be there because you're a man. And you won't take notes, you know, whatever it would be. Yeah. And um, now I, I, it's like more about taking responsibility for everything that I'm feeling yeah, and then examining it, and that that is very fruitful. Even these feelings of like, why do I feel like an inadequate mom? I need to understand that, and what would it look like to do it differently? I fully understand what you're saying, and I I think like, why do I talk about this all the time if I'm still doing like so much of the perpetual crazy shit, you know, yeah. and picking up all of this slack that I I'm putting on myself to pick up, and I think that like what you're saying is just like beginning to become conscious about it to deprogram is yes. good it's a good place to start you got to start somewhere right yeah so i want to take 30 seconds to talk about perfect bar who is making this episode possible these are nutrient packed protein bars they have this like amazing cookie dough like texture that i love my favorite flavor is the coconut peanut butter they also have a snack size available which is just right up my alley obviously my favorite snack size flavor is the dark chocolate chip and what i truly love most about these bars is that i trust them so they're refrigerated because they're not jammed with preservatives and they contain real whole foods so do yourself a favor and try perfect bars. And now back to the show. So then you talked about like leaving your job at Goop, I presume, and that you had spent all of this time like compulsively working, not spending as much time with your kids, your husband, etc. Would you say that that was a, a, a work culture environment that was a precedent that was already set for you that you felt a pressure to maintain? Or was that a precedent that you had set for yourself there? Yeah, I think I think it was a precedent I set for myself. And it's an old pattern for me. This, you know, I have watched this is what I observed in my mom, this inability to sit still, to rest, to take a quote unquote vacation. My mother was just doing stuff all the time for us, for the house, for organizations in town, et cetera. And in college, I recognized like if I took more credits, I did better. And that 
I could drive myself to achieve more at a higher level by overloading myself. That there was something in sort of the, the at the precipice of chaotic overwhelm where I like quote unquote did my best work, which is sort of a messed up bit of conditioning that I'm still wrestling with. But then I would say, I don't think I'm that unusual. And many women, even if they're not individually contributing, managing a team and raising a family, are overextended in at least two spheres. You know, my friends who don't work outside of the house, quote unquote, are still like, on the board of the school, volunteering for three organizations. It's like, we don't know any, I don't know any idle women. I don't know women who aren't completely tapped. Do you know any women like that? No, not really. No. I mean, being a stay-at-home mother working in the home, whatever, however you want to say it, is a full-time job anyway. Like caretaking for if, if your kids are little in their home, like you're that's it's actually brutal. I did it. It's brutal. It's more than a full-time job. It is so hard. And that's another thing like I was going to say to you because I feel like a p- part of what I hear as well is that you're really impassioned by your career and your work, which is a fantastic thing, but I think that for a lot of women and maybe, you know, to the extent that we're talking about it like is a recipe for burnout. Mm-hmm. Not really a great way to increase your overall productivity if you like look at the heart of what productivity is, right? Instead of just like outturning work all the time. But I feel like as a, a woman that's like working, starting a business, running a business, that kind of thing, there's a part of me that feels guilty to admit that I would rather be doing that more than being home with my kids more. Mm-hmm. And um and feeling like I was more present in that motherhood role. I'm like, no, I'd actually, I'm, I'm actually much more impassioned by, by my work right now. And I feel really bad saying that. I think that there's just this, like, there's that bad, not good feeling. Yeah. So that's, I think something that's really present for women that men don't have to experience that, that if they're dedicated to their careers, it's just sort of like the norm or they're praised for that. And if women are are saying that they would rather be working or or really focused on their career right now or that kind of thing. And they also have young children at home. Then there's sort of this like, that's weird. Like, you know, she's must not be that great. She's not that great of a mom. Yes. It is a messed up inheritance. And I wrote an op-ed for the New York times about this sort of the ambiguity of motherhood and the way that it's sold to us, and this was my experience with my mom, it's sold to us as a conjoined, you cannot love your children if you don't love the identity of being a mother. And I, the two are distinct for me. I do not love mothering. I fiercely love my children. And this is, the essay is about my mom who grew up in second wave feminism and sort of had a choice, but sort of didn't. She grew up in a very poor house, became a nurse. That was sort of the viable option, met my dad. Um, Never wanted to have children, had children for this marriage, et cetera. And so I, I experienced that extreme ambivalence of an incredibly competent mother who didn't love being a mother, but loved me and gave me all sorts of opportunities and resented and was deeply envious of women who were, quote unquote, doing something with their lives. So I have that sort of uneasy inheritance as well, which makes me sadly grateful to have boys because I think it's more complex for daughters um, to sort of be passing on 
these cultural attributes of motherhood when you're like, I resist this, even though I am attached to it. But this is not, and this is, this is a symptom of patriarchy because when you go back to sort of our prehistory, who we were for millions of years before patriarchy, patriarchy is pretty new. Mm-hmm. And you think about how families and tribes were structured and survived there were no nuclear families. There was no sort of like the father does this and the mother does this. Children were raised communally and often by grandparents or older adults because able-bodied adults needed to go out and quote unquote work, plant, forage, hunt, survive. And so um, I think it's in us, it's in women to, to do things outside of just taking care of our children. I think there are some women who are incredibly gifted with kids, teachers, for example, pediatric nurses. Like for some people, that's their gift, right? Like that is their their empathic ability. That is not me. I find children fascinating, but I don't want to get down on the ground and play with them. I find that very um, not who I am, you know? Yeah, I'd rather poke myself in the eye than play anything imaginary ever. Yeah. You talked about what Laurie Gottlieb said, um, author Laurie Gottlieb, in your Envy chapter, which is to follow your envy, it will tell you what you want and how sort of women will go after each other a little bit for what is envy versus jealousy? You explain that as well. But what at the heart of it is is envy, what you want that somebody else has or is doing. Um, and I guess I I'm gonna turn I'm gonna turn this on you and ask you, and this might make you even uncomfortable, but what do you want? What do you envy? Yeah, this book really put me in touch with that. And that comment from Lori Gottlieb. I don't know, just open a door in my mind where I realized that I don't didn't necessarily know what I wanted. And I think that's not unusual for women because we have been conditioned to believe that it's our job to subjugate our wants to other people's needs. Clearly, this is certainly an essential demand of mothers, first and foremost, to sort of prioritize your own life above that of your children is perceived as very culturally deviant. And so I think most of us don't have any idea what we want, or if we do, we've stuffed it. And then there's sort of the reverberations of this, right? So our moms probably didn't model what they wanted, right? Most of their wants were buried under the needs of the family. And so a lot of us don't have any idea of what it actually looks like. Then it's dangerous, right? You see women of quote-unquote ambition. We have a lot of feelings about women like that. And I, it's, what, I, what I want is very clear because I've been doing what I want through the lens of other people for my entire career, right? Hiding behind other people. This has given me great pleasure to send ideas into the world through the other people's megaphones and other people's brands. And when I thought about what I wanted, I was like, wow, what I want is what I like celebrate in other people. I mean, we'll get to the envy part of it as well. I want to write books. I want to host a podcast. I want to be available to my family or more physically present. And 
The thing about what Lori Gottlieb said with envy, again, going to this idea of things that we think are bad, when we don't know what we want and we see another woman doing something that we want, it's very triggering. But because we don't have any process for thinking about those wants, diagnosing them, naming them, working on them, it just feels bad. It feels uncomfortable and bad. And so we take all that bad feeling and we project it onto the woman in question. And we say things like, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is? And we don't, it's so culturally sanctioned and so accepted that none of us are stopping to be like, wait, wait, why? Why? Right? It's just completely sanctioned behavior, sometimes celebrated. And I found that when I stopped to think about it, like, what is this woman doing that's bothering me? It's just full of information. Because you'll find, too, that the women who annoy you are not the same women who annoy your friends. And when you stop and think about it and say, why is this woman great? Is it because, like, she wears those short skirts because she loves her legs and, like, her body is so nice and, like, I actually hate my body? Or... um. Why am I criticizing this woman's book when I actually think the book is pretty good, but I'm finding all the reasons to destroy her, judge her, shame her, condemn her, make her smaller? It's because she's pushing on the dream that I have for myself. And instead of saying, wow, okay, she did that. I can do that too. Our instinct, our cultural instinct, not our nature, but our cultural instinct is like, I will destroy her and dethrone her because that makes me uncomfortable. That is just showing me what I want and what I do not have and what I am not currently pursuing. Yeah. It feels like really reminiscent of like, you know, high school popularity contests, right? Where you wish you were the number one popular girl in school and you'll say mean things about her because you want to be that. Um, Yes. It's just so hard, I think, for us to also know that when you are, like you were saying, when you do reach a certain level, um, there is like, then you're under this microscope of people waiting to tear you down, right? So we're afraid of climbing higher, which I think is why it is so important for women to support other women, at least verbally, like that way out there, or just not talk shit. And to recognize what it is, because it's like even Queen Bee, like there's there are all these cultural instincts to make um, this behavior seem natural. Like this is who women are. Women are just catty bitches. And I think a lot of us have bought that as like, oh, there's something in me that is this. Um, we're, we're bees. We're just naturally bees. Well, we're not. This is all cultural conditioning around scarcity and this idea of if you don't, if you don't have that throne, you won't be safe. You won't be secure. You won't be chosen. There's only room for one. Um, if she has that job, if she has that seat on the executive team where there's only ever one woman, it means that you can't have it either. Mm-hmm. It's all culture. This is not who we inherently are. This is who we're acculturated to be and how we behave because we've been programmed to believe that this is who we are. And we change it by interrupting it and recognizing it and saying, okay, I don't need to destroy her in order to take her seat there. The fact that she has done this means that I can do it too. 
And it requires recognizing this and getting on side with each other and making the world bigger rather than continuing to sort of support and abide by these cultural ideas of what girls do and how they behave. And this collides with anger, the anger chapter where I write about aggression, which is very natural in all humans, boys and girls alike. And very few kids, I think it's better now, but when I was growing up, we weren't really taught healthy conflict, right? We weren't taught how to sort of handle discomfort, how to give feedback, how to process that sort of information, et cetera. And boys are allowed to have overt aggression, to yell, hit, punch, get into fights on the school ground, right? We sort of venerate it. We certainly accept it. And girls, on the other hand, are taught that that's not feminine, it's not appropriate. And so where does our very natural aggression go? It goes sideways. It comes out in covert ways, whispering. We get very dirty, nasty. Dirty, yeah. Alliance building, backstabbing. And then we're told that this is who we are. This is not who we are. This is, again, how we've been conditioned to behave. But it's like we don't know what to do with those bad feelings. So we suppress, repress them, and then project them onto other people instead of just letting it out. And there is that, what you're talking about with scarcity, there is this notion of scarcity because when you look around at the top, how many women do you see at the top, right? So you feel like there are these, only a certain amount of this available to all of us, right? So where we experience this phenomenon of like whatever women pulling up the corporate ladder behind them instead of letting it down for other women to climb. Um, But it, it does feel that way because it does feel like there really is only so much space for women to get to the top still today. And we support that by continuing to support these patterns instead Mm -hmm. of saying, like you look at the social science, that's what's sort of stunning is it's not men, it's not just men blocking women and holding women down. I'm sure that happens. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't. But the social science suggests that women are as hard on other women or if if not harder. And that we say things like, I just expect more from women, you know, et cetera. However we want to cover it, we're just projecting this onto each other where we make it really hard. And so part of achieving equity is actually supporting other women instead of just using it as a hashtag on Instagram. Yeah, definitely. I hate that hashtag too. It's just so lame. Me too. That drives me crazy. You mentioned anger, which is actually the next question that I I had for your next topic. I wanted to ask you about because, uh, again, like through the scope of motherhood, I feel as though I have these moments of anger and rage like I did not experience prior to having children and that like I'm going to burst at sometimes. And I wonder, do you think that that's sort of a result of us being further ingrained as now we're not just women anymore. Now we're mothers. Now we're like the ultimate, you know, embodiment of goodness, our maternal motherly goodness and that it just creates like even more of a pressure cooker that we're like deeply repressed and then it becomes like more magnified when it gets to the surface in a way. 
Yeah. Do you experience that as a mom? Do you relate to that? Yeah. It took me a long time to even just admit that I was angry and then to recognize like, oh, actually, it's one of my core attributes. It just comes out as impatience, irritation, frustration, et cetera, because I don't let it come up. I liken myself to sort of a champagne bottle with the top on there, just holding down the pressure and held in place by a metal cage. But like once unleashed, watch out. There's some pretty great fucking stuff inside though. Yeah, it's delicious (laughs) and effervescent. Bubbly. Yes, I think it's because so many of us have been removed from our anger. Like we've been displaced from it and it has not been deemed appropriate for us to have. And so we're not in the practice of allowing it, experiencing it, processing it, using it, et cetera. We just suppress and repress. And I think that it builds up over time. And I think that anger is a beautiful emotion. It shows us what we need. It shows us where our boundaries are. And, you know, I write a bit about Harriet Lerner's work, who wrote The Dance with Anger. And she talks about how anger for so many women has signified relationship loss Hmm. and that to change and have needs means that maybe the people sort of in our patriarchal partnerships won't want us anymore. I think that's a deep dread that sort of compounds over time. Um, we're, we're very conditioned to take emotional responsibility for other people's feelings, right? This is kind of what it is to be a woman, to be responsible for how everyone in the room feels. And it's your job to balance it and make everything nice for everyone. And then I write about Marshall Rosenberg, who wrote Nonviolent Communication and sort of what emotional liberation actually looks like. And part of it is you are not blaming anyone. You're not blaming yourself. You're not taking responsibility for their feelings. You're only taking responsibility for your own. And you get to the point where you can say, I am angry because I am needing fill in the blank. Mm. It's not, I am angry at you because you didn't sign the permission slip. It is, I am angry because I am needing a level of support at home, which makes me feel like i if I don't catch everything, that you are at least are there to catch the rest. But I think it gets to the point for for women where we're like, this is too much. Stop making me responsible for everything. And until we learn how to process it, I think it's turned inward and shows up in our bodies in bad ways as depression, anxiety, illness, et cetera. Yeah, I actually also feel like anxiety causes a lot of anger and irritability. Like I don't have the space for um, anything else on my plate because I'm already anxious about something. And then I don't know about other people, but like I go into like I need like a quiet space to deal with my anxiety for 10 minutes here. And if anything else interrupts that right now, I'm going to probably snap at you. Yeah. The two go hand in hand in so many ways, you know, because that that lack of support leading to anger causes anxiety, overwhelm, etc. And one can almost not be solved without the other. It's just also such a hard time of life to deal with all of it in the midst of rearing young children because they're so constant. Yes. <laughs> they never let up. Children and their needs. God damn it. I need a break. I need a vacation. 
you also talk about how hard it is. Like I think this was the pride chapter to, for women to just name something that's good or like that they love about themselves and talk about something that, you know, they love within themselves. What do you love about yourself? Ha. Well, I think, yes, I think it's really essential and really difficult to name our gifts. And I think when we start to feel any sense of pride, we shove it, right? We feel ironically humiliated that we would dare to think well of ourselves. And in the last few years, I've been trying to figure out who I am, which maybe is a weird thing to say as a 43-year-old woman, but I think many people can relate to that. And what I'm here to do, and I think that my gift is... Um, I'm really good at distilling information and synthesizing information from different sources and pulling together things that you don't necessarily think belong in the same chapter, but weaving it together in a way that you start to understand the world through a more sort of complex or inter- interesting tapestry. My editor is like, you're the most, in some ways, democratic person she knows because I find a lot of wisdom in psychic mediums and sex therapists, and I find a lot of wisdom in academics and professors and theologians. Like I look everywhere. I turn over a lot of rocks to find good material, honestly, wisdom, knowledge and wisdom. Um, And I think that that's sort of my gift. And part of it is probably being sort of an outsider insider. And never really, I kind of don't belong um, in any single world, um, which I think makes me a good translator because I am comfortable with lots of different people, but I also, um, I like maintain a place of curiosity. And as you said, I'm interested in everyone. That's my, that's my jam. Yeah, I love that about you too. I love it about you. Thank You're you. fantastic at at that and that synthesis of information and uh, bringing together a couple of different thoughts into one kind of cohesive thing that really makes sense. And this is what like, you obviously did a ton of research for this book and um, and the history of it all, which is also a fascinating part of it as a as a reader slash listener of it. Um, there is a lot more in the book that I could literally chew your ear off about all day long here, but I won't keep you forever. Uh, But I do need to ask you before I allow you to leave. um, I, I usually tell everybody to get themselves a snack and I'd like, I'd also like to know what your favorite snack is. I mean, to be honest, it's like obviously highly influenced by whatever my kids are jamming on in the moment. I love um, Tostitos uh, or actually Chica's tortilla chips. I'm more, much more of a savory person than a sweet person. That's what this always comes around to. Yeah. What are you basically, savory or sweet? Yeah. yeah. I um, love beef jerky, which I know is, sounds disgusting, but maybe it's my Montana roots. I got everyone in boarding school, all the girls in boarding school addicted to beef jerky, which was like thrilling. And I like glutino, um, glutino pretzels dipped in um, 
miso. I just love Ooh. salt. Isn't that gross? Ooh, wait, is a glutino pretzel a gluten-free pretzel? They're gluten-free. I, d- I just like them. Um, my husband went through a stint of not eating gluten, which is better for his gut. But um, And I got kind of – I just got into the pretzel sticks. I like them. Yeah, they're very crunchy, the gluten-free. Yes. Yeah, there's a nice, yes. there's a great texture to those things. I um, That was actually one last thing before – I let you go when your chapter about gluttony and how you kind of just call out. I think that there was like this part that everyone just wants people to also say about these women and who are just so slender and fit and perfect looking everywhere. Um, Just say that you've not been eating. Yeah. <laughs> Tell exactly. the truth. Like, as long as we don't think that we're just like never going to be able to, you know, live up to your standards, be be real about like, I'm not being healthy, actually, behind the scenes here at home or whatever. Yes, please. There's nothing I think more damaging to other women than to sort of push this idea of, oh, I eat whatever I want. Yeah. And without clarifying if that is what you want, that it's like, you know, some sad fish and steamed vegetables and a handful of almonds, like say it. Um, Cause I think it's so pernicious when the rest of us are like, well, if I eat what I know, cause now I'm back in a place of eating what I want and I weigh 20 pounds more than I do when I'm really restricting riding myself hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, I can't lie and say, oh yeah, that's, I'm eating when I, at that point in my life, I was eating what I wanted. What I want to eat is like a burrito. I was not eating burritos. Yes. I hate when I see like a post on social media of a model, like getting into a cheeseburger and that it's like the, you know, let's also explain that this has happened once in the last five years. Yes, (laughs) I know. So it creates so much cognitive dissonance and confusion and it's, I get why I understand why women do it. And so it's, I also, it's like separating the women from the system and the system is really messed up and deserves all of our ire and insistence on changing it. And it's hard to sort of, I resist the urge to like punish individual women, but I just wish that we could get to the place of saying actually to look like this, I am a quote unquote stylish anorexic to quote Marion Woodman. And that's what's required. And that's what I do in order to look like this um, would feel, I think, better for a lot of women to then say, oh, I don't actually want to be a stylish anorexic. I, I want to enjoy my life and eat food. Yeah. Um, and to also be honest about like, listen, I'm a model or I'm an actor or whatever. And these are industry standards that are really difficult that I have to keep up with. I hate doing yeah. it, but this is what I do to be successful in my job or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that would just pull the veil down, just be more respectable. Yes. And then it allows us to have a cultural conversation about beauty standards without making it about individual people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like sharp would be able to say like, okay, then let's talk about these beauty standards mm-hmm. that we're pretending are sort of a natural, a natural event, but actually require so much abstention and like punishing of bodies. And um, so how do we change this? And how do we change our casting, etc. It's like a much bigger conversation, but that's a worthy conversation rather than punishing the women who... 
abide by that in order to work. Um, it's just really hard to start to untangle it. Yeah. I loved that part. I loved, I just loved how honest your book was in general. And, um, thank you for writing it and thank you for, um, coming on today. It was so lovely to have a chance to chat with you, Elise. So fun. I loved every second of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Elise. Thanks again. Thanks so much for being here. For more information on today's episode, visit my show notes. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a review. Now get yourself a snack.